The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Alan Gannett, author of The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Alan Gannett, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How are you? I'm good. I'm already tipsy. It's amazing what that'll do for a lightweight. <laughs> well, now you're you're doing okay. You don't you don't have the coronavirus. The last guy I interviewed, Mark Schaefer, was just combing over coronavirus. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I, I've I've not caught it. Uh, fortunately, everyone's family's healthy, and so you know the only the only thing I'm you know quote unquote suffering from is a little bit of cabin fever. But I'll take that any day. Right. So. Where are you, and what's changed for you? What did uh, did you have some plans? What's I mean, what's what's going on? Yeah, so I'm in Washington D.C. right now, and you know, there's both been a lot of change and also not a lot of change. I'd say so. In January, I left my day job, which was I for about six and a half years ran a company called TrackMaven, which is a market analytics company used by a lot of big brands. And in late 2018, we merged with a larger company, and I just left that in January of this year. And so my plan was, you know, be, become a full-time author speaker and, you know, work on a new book. And obviously this year, there's not a lot of speaking that's going to be happening. Um, and I tend to be pretty bearish, I think, on speaking really in events, really coming back until there's a vaccine or an antiviral or something. Mm. And so I decided that, you know, for me, this is actually in some ways an opportunity of, you know, let's get the new book done faster. And so my goal is rather than get the book done over, you know, the last one took me three years because I was doing it sort of, you know, nights and weekends, um, you know, can I get this one done in sort of, you know, this calendar year and, uh, you know, basically turning this into a writing sabbatical, which ain't so bad. Right. So everyone knows Alan Gannett, but I think even more people know your dog, Maven, <laughs> the, uh, the Corgi, and I'm a big Corgi fan. So... <laughs> Uh, I think the the question on a lot of listeners' minds is how is Maven? How is Maven handling handling all this? And are we going to hear from Maven during this interview? You, I mean, you probably will hear from Maven during this interview. 
Um, he is a very uh, astute watchdog. I would not say guard dog because he's actually guard me. He just watches very astutely. And if he sees anything out of place, he'll start barking. But um, he's, he's doing well. So he's six and a half. He's a very mischievous Pembroke Welsh Corgi. And he doesn't like when it's rainy and it's rainy this weekend. So he's kind of in a weird little moody funk. Um, but generally, he's really been liking this, you know, having dad at home a lot uh-huh. and um, getting a lot more scratches than usual. So I think he is uh, one of the few fans of what's going on. But I guess most dogs are. So Yes. And if nobody saw it, there was a brilliant article in the Wall Street Journal recently by Jason Gay. So funny. <laughs> he is the funniest writer in the world. And normally he covers sports, but last I heard, there's not a lot of sports to cover. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he wrote this point-counterpoint editorial, one written by a dog, one written by a cat. And basically the cats want the humans out of the house. They want them, you know, if they don't want them dead, they just want them away. <laughs> and the dogs can't get enough of the humans being home, even though they're chewing up some of the furniture. But it went on to say that maybe now the humans understand why the dogs do chew up things because they're pooped <laughs> up in the house all the day, all yeah. day long. So, yeah. So, uh, before we go much further, there's one other bit of uh, Alan Gannett trivia that I just have to remind the listener of. You Uh-oh. were once a contestant on the game show Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> oh, you're just bringing out, oh my God, all of the embarrassing tidbits. Yeah, I was, I was 18. And I was on it, and I that was just lost. Uh, three years ago, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, I lost miserably, like really badly. I this woman Joan from Alexandria, Virginia, never forget. Uh, she won like sixty thousand dollars, and I think I won. I won like three grand in a trip, and I didn't even get to really take the trip because the taxes would have been more than the cash that I got the three grand, oh, and my so. Goodness. Yeah, it's a like fun experience, but like you know, I have there, there's a repeat out there that I you know I need to give it another go at some point. Well, now you can be on uh, Celebrity Wheel of Fortune. Oh my God, this is everyone's blushing here. <laughs> <laughs> right, but I seem to recall some a video clip of you on that show. There is there is a video floating around LinkedIn. I uh, yeah, there is a video of me, and I think it is my is a reaction shot of the multiple times I hit bankrupt. <laughs> it was really bad. Like, yeah. But now speaking of LinkedIn, recently I interviewed James Carberry, who's uh, you may have know from the B2B yeah. growth show. And he mentioned you during that interview, uh, which was an interview about James's book called Content-Based Networking. And he talked about your famous LinkedIn videos that you do. Tell listeners about those videos that you do and what started it and what's, what's, what's become of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the videos I've been doing now, I guess for three years, maybe, maybe a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, but they're, they're called Alan Asks. And the idea is that um, when LinkedIn first launched video, I sort of saw that, you know, obviously mobile video is something that was you know, getting a lot of traction. And, you know, I'm sort of a, you know, extroverts extrovert. And so I'm always meeting people. And I thought it'd be kind of fun. Like, why don't I start doing videos with some of the people I'm meeting just as I go about life? So I started, um, you know, harassing my, you know, lunch dates for, uh, hey, can we do a video for LinkedIn? And the whole idea was sort of like, you know, two minutes or less, one quick actionable tip. And, you know, since then, I've done um, interviews with everyone from, um, you know, presidential candidates like Pete Buttigieg to Mark Cuban to Kobe Bryant. And, you know, total cumulative, they've gotten over 6 million views. 
And right now I'm doing sort of during the quarantine, I'm doing sort of a live version of it. So I'm doing twice a week, I'm doing little uh, Alan Aslington lives with different people, which has been really fun. But yeah, it's been really cool. And it's been a, a neat way to sort of spread some knowledge and people seem to like it. And it's, you know, it's super easy. I just shoot it on my iPhone and, uh, you know, get someone to caption it. And that's the whole thing. There's no, there's no production. You, you have dramatically more production than me. So I have watched so many of those, and I don't know. There's so many elements of it there, but the the answers are always good. The, there's one question that's very clear. They're never very long, but I remember watching the Kobe Bryant one and the Pete Buttigieg. I know I'm pronouncing it wrong probably, but Mayor Pete and uh, several of the others. And then uh, a year or two ago, I was at Content Marketing World in Cleveland, and you were a speaker there, and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get to meet him, and he's going to whoop that phone out and do a video with me, and you didn't do it. So, it's just okay. <laughs> you know, it's important. It's we should have done one. You should have <laughs> said something. I would have done it's, it. It's okay. It's okay. I know my place. Yeah. You know, I'm just the, the humble uh, host of the Marketing you've, World You've podcast. let it go. You've let it go. Yeah, you don't That's hold right. on to that. There's no grudge. But I do uh, want to go to someplace where you will be speaking in hopes that I run into you. And actually, I think you only live three and a half hours away up in the D.C. area. Yeah. But, um, now, you said you're moving up to New York? Yes. So, not the best time to be moving up to New York, but I was supposed to move in March, which would have been a really terrible time. Oh, so, yeah. I can only delay my new lease start date so long. So, I'm going to, I'm going to move. And if it if it feels too dystopian, I might go spend some time with uh, you know, my family somewhere. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. So you're, uh, the last time I interviewed you, or the only time, uh, it was about your uh, book, The Creative Curve. And as we were doing the interview, the fire alarm in your building went off. Oh, yeah. It, it was an actual fire, I think, or something. Oh, it was, was it? like. Yeah, it was something, or it was like a, it was not a, it was not a drill, put it that way. It might have been an accidental alarm, but it was not a drill. It was a very dramatic interview because it literally just like loud fire alarms started going off and we had to evacuate. So we, we said, okay, well, uh, you know, Godspeed, Austin Powers, may we meet again. <laughs> and so we, we broke it off and then we, we reconnected later that day and we were able to finish it and you were safe and the building didn't uh, burn <laughs> down. But uh, in case anybody hears Maven barking because there's, yeah, there's probably somebody trying to get into your building to, you know, <laughs> interview you or something. And Maven, we're going to hear from uh, Maven. But your uh, book came up just two weeks ago in the Marketing Boot podcast on a yet unpublished interview I did with Melanie Diesel, who wrote the Content Fuel Framework. And her book is all about how to come up with really almost unlimited ideas for content. Now, naturally, she's a former journalist, but she's got a real system there. And during the interview, I talked about how her book, in a very different way, reminded me of The Creative Curve. Because, again, this was two years ago that I read it and spoke to you about it. But one of the things that really made an impression on me was this notion about creativity being lightning in a bottle, total myth. It's mm. very much more about following a system. And you showed how people do it now, how people did it hundreds of years ago. Could you recap the thesis of the book for folks that haven't listened to that interview? Yeah. So the book, you know, the book is basically diving into this question of, can you learn to become more creative? And there's a lot of things sort of built into that question, but that's sort of the, the main, the main question. And it's split into two halves. So the first half is sort of myth-busting a lot of the ideas we have about creativity. Like we think creativity is this sort of mythological thing that's given to a few semi-divine people 
and you're born with it or you're not, and that's sort of, that's the whole game. And that's not at all how creativity works. And we've been studying creativity for years in psychology, sociology, anthropology, neuroscience. And so I talk about what creativity really is. And the second half of the book is dissecting four patterns, four things you can actually do in order to become more creative. And what I did is I interviewed about 25 living creative greats. So these are Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, Grammy winners, Michelin star chefs, billionaires. And basically I talk about some of their stories that are examples of these patterns. And I also explain the science of why these things work. And so, you know, one of the things that I think really resonates with people, especially sort of marketers, is one of the things that you find when you look at a lot of the studies around creativity is that the ideas that tend to take off, and the subtitle of the book is How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time, the ideas that tend to take off are the ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. They are not too new and they're not too familiar, but they have one foot in each. And so you think about Star Wars, right? It's a Western in space. You can think about Harry Potter. It's a very straightforward orphan story that's told in this sort of magical wizarding world. You know, think about West Side Story, it's Romeo and Juliet retold. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of examples. But the interesting thing is that as humans, it turns out, and we can, you know, talk about this for 40 minutes, but it turns out the ideas we're most attracted to are a blend of the old and the new. And I think that's a really important framework and something for marketers to think about because when you're creating new content, right, you can't go too far on either of those things. If it's too new, no one's going to actually react to it. They'll be sort of like, this is weird. If it's too familiar, it's been done a million times, it's not really interesting. It's about getting that balance right. And the book really speaks a lot to how do you get the balance right. Hmm. So... You mentioned you've got another book coming up. Can you share any of that with us? It's super nascent, so not yet, but it is not a marketing book. I'll tell you that. It's more of a pop psychology, maybe, you know, I don't know if self-help's a dirty word, but like more in that lens of the world. So it's less a marketing book, although I think a lot of marketers would like it. Mm-hmm. And I think sort of it, it's a message that I think would resonate with a lot of people. But I'm like, I'm like a couple of years out from talking about it, I think. Okay. Well, whenever it comes out, I know this guy that interviews authors of new <laughs> books and, uh, you know. I'll call him. He's a good dude. Yeah. He, he well, he's drunk not, on a Sunday. So. Yes. It's, you know, <laughs> well, we don't have to wait just till, you know, just on the weekends here. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm just saying. And he's a big fan of Corgi's. So, um, good taste. Long as uh, Maven's still around, I think, you know, you, <laughs> you, <gotta laughs> you know, so. Corgi's live um, 16 to 18 years on average. Isn't that wild? No, I did not know Yeah, that. they're sturdy little creatures. I'm like, you're going to meet my like grandchildren at this rate. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, these golden retrievers and I'm always wanting to get corgis and my wife's always saying no no they're too bossy and I'm thinking no these golden retrievers they need to be bossed around they need somebody in charge <laughs> to tell them what to do so yeah know. they are they are they are uh, not very docile dog corgis so. <laughs> right. that's right so you mentioned that you don't think uh, that this there's gonna be a whole lot of uh, public speaking going on and that you know you're doing this uh, sort of a externally imposed uh, writing sabbatical. What else do you think is, is going to happen? Or what do, you th- what do you think is going to happen that maybe people don't quite realize? And I guess what, maybe what should be people thinking about? Well, I tend to think about this in a few different lenses. I mean, I think we can look back and we can look at 1918 
And that was a time when we had not as sophisticated a health system, less health innovations. And obviously, after the pandemic of 1918, Spanish flu, we had the roaring 20s, right? And it was a time of great prosperity and happiness and all these things. So I tend to think that uh, as humans, we have a lot of biases in our thinking. One of them is we are sort of slow to adapt to what's next. So what I mean by that is when this started happening, sort of late February, early March, people were sort of like, okay, this is going to maybe last a couple of weeks. You know, this is not going to be too bad. And as this goes on, you're now hearing people say, you know, this is going to last, you know, for three years, four years. And I think when you look at the science, you know, it seems like, and I'm not a science journalist, I'm not a science writer, like, right. But like, it seems like the people who are seem to say most more likely than not, that's not the case. More likely than not, you know, next year sometime, there's some, you know, strong positive developments, if not sooner. And so, I think one of the interesting things as humans is you know, when we're in the middle of it, we sort of say, okay, this is going to be our state forever. And that's slightly an adaptive mechanism, right? It's a way in which we say, okay, how do I then sort of contextualize this? How do I adapt to this? How do I um, you know, thrive in this sort of new dynamic? And that's a really great survival um, tool that humans have, but I think it can sometimes get us into, into trouble. So I tend to think that going forward, you know, once this is over, I, I like the um, the acronym as soon as safe, ASAS. Um, I think that most things will go back to how they were before. I think some of the things where I think there will be some more permanent changes, and these are hypotheses. I actually don't have enough you know data yet to feel that these are confirmed. Is I think the the most obvious one to me is the shift to e-commerce and direct to consumer brands. Is just you know we just sort of. I think light, you know, went 10 years ahead of where we were sort of on pace to be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a permanent change. And then I think there will be a change, but I actually don't know what it will be to how offices work. And I'm not a huge believer in the idea that like everyone loves remote work. I think certain people do, but like I know a lot of sales or marketing teams where are like teams of extroverts and it's like they hate it, right? Yeah. And so you know, maybe it's like people, you know, rotate into an office, but then even in the office, people aren't going to want to be in an open office that's super cramped. So maybe we need more space, right? Like I actually don't know. So I think, I think those two areas are where I think there'll be a permanent change, but otherwise, you know, once it's safe to do so, you know, people are going to want to go travel more than ever before. People are going to want to go to concerts. People are going to want to hug their friends. These are very human things to do and it's almost going to be pent up. So I tend to think that we'll have a snapback um, in terms of behavior once it's safe. But before that, it's going to be very different for a while. Interesting. And I think that after all this, everyone's going to become much more attuned to the limitations of the, the virtual world. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've spoken to a couple authors, and they've said the one thing they really look forward to is live music. And yes. every, a lot of people are interested in going to a sporting event. Basically, a lot of people just want to go to a coffee shop and sit around with a bunch of strangers. Even that's better. Yeah. That's why those things, those, those kinds of places are, are so interesting because uh, the humans just want to be around other humans. And trying to operate virtually is just, uh, it just doesn't really use much of our, what we're equipped to do. Yeah. And there's all these interesting studies around the importance of touch, right? And with um, sort of, you know, with babies and with old people, like, the importance of being touched and, you know, this is why like hugs and physical intimacy are all things that are very human and very important. And obviously in time like this, those are things that are very hard to do. And so, 
you know, yeah, I think, I think the virtual world, to your point, it's like we're going to see sort of what is the frontier of what we like to do. And one thing I would say, you know, again, when it comes to the virtual world, I worry that a lot of the things that people are doing now are too far on the familiar curve. Like they're taking offline experiences and say, let's do it online. And that's actually not a particularly good strategy for, um, you know, sort of rearranging what you do to the online world. You know, I think about you want to create something that's original to the online world, right? I'm surprised that more brands aren't doing things like game shows, right? There's all this branded content. And like online, there's all these cool ways you could do sort of interactive game shows and all these things. And like if I'm a brand, like that's what I'd be doing right now. And like using the things that work well online, like interactivity and creating interesting experiences around that. And so I tend to think that, um, that's sort of an area where for a lot of marketers, there's things and ideas you can play with, which is how do I create something that's not just a transposing of offline experience, but an experience that's new and different, but also familiar, right? So I think an online game show is a really great example of that. That's interesting. And you know, that brings to mind the notion that when, a little before your time, Alan Gannett, but when uh, radio first came about, uh, I want to say the 1920s, everyone said, well, who knows what they said. I wasn't there. But a lot of people thought, oh, that's it for newspapers. Mm. That's it for newspapers. And then television came around. They said, that's, that's the death of radio right there. And then uh, the internet came around. It, 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 there were more uh, predictions. And all of them disrupted uh, the world. But they were all somewhat additive. But when television first came about, a lot of the television programming was radio programming with a camera in the studio mm. because they didn't quite know <laughs> how best to use the medium, which is what came to mind as you were, uh, as you were describing it. That's a really good story. I actually have never heard that. That makes, that's, I think, a great example of this, right? It's like there's sort of, and this is almost a problem also with like, you know, podcasts, right? It's like, there's so many podcasts that just took sort of a radio concept and, you know, we're only sort of seeing, I think more recently, some of the interesting concepts that people are doing around things that are sort of more attuned to a podcast format. Can you explain that more? Like in other words, um, what I think I'm hearing, and I know I sound like one of the many uh, <laughs> therapists in my building. Uh, so an example to me would be on linear radio, right? There is um, things like, talk shows, right? There are things like uh, interview shows. There are things like the news. Um, and these shows have a certain format. But then what you're seeing is some of the most popular content and podcasts is stuff that I think is a little bit different, right? Like The Daily, for example, right? It's like, which is intentionally very short and actually not trying to capture your attention, which is most radio, the goal is like, how do I get you to keep listening? Through the right. commercials. Yeah. And so that idea of being like intentionally short is something that only really works on podcasts where you might have a playlist of things you're going to listen through. And so having that five minute thing is actually quite useful. And so I think that to me is an interesting thing to your point around like we sort of, I think at first when there's a new medium or new format, we sort of transpose ideas over to it. And it's only once people have gone some time to really get used to it, that they start to create things that are sort of unique to that platform and work best on that platform. I see. So I, when I'm listening to podcasts, normally it's podcasts that were produced to be podcasts, but I can always tell the difference when I'm listening to something that was originally on the radio and it's a, uh, there's something 
sort of out of sorts there, and I guess you've just articulated why why I don't listen yeah, to Yeah, I mean, because most terrestrial radio other than NPR, they have to get you to listen through the commercial breaks, right? There's a different cadence to how it works. Like, it just is inherently different versus, you know, with podcasts, um, there's all sorts of interesting things you can do. Like, you can now do sort of Netflix-style binge listens if you want and drop an entire season of something. So mm-hmm. there is real differences that I think people have to get used to, and this is why you're seeing across almost any platform or any form of content, whenever there's a new platform that emerges, there's this weird sort of like, you know, tornado phase where like all these brands are trying to figure out what to do. And and what happens out of that chaotic energy is these like creators who are sort of native to that platform emerge that really get it. And I think about like, obviously TikTok right now or Vine a few years ago or Instagram a few years ago, you know, some of the brands that are starting to do TikTok stuff, it's like kind of comical how bad it is versus some of the creators who literally are becoming famous from that platform, like they get it and they're doing stuff that is unique to that platform. And so I think that is something for a lot of us just to think about is like when these new platforms emerge, you know, how do we remember that these things are not just metaphors for something else? You know, they are, they are new things in of themselves. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think there's also a lot of, and maybe it's human nature, but there's a lot of this, uh, what I've heard described as check the box marketing. Mm. In other words, rather than thinking about what the audience wants or what their customers want or what they could do that's uh, novel and innovative, it's more like, let's do a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, Or let's do a TikTok video. Let's, you know, check the box. What's our Snapchat strategy for selling those (laughs) industrial boilers? Okay. Yeah. So... Well, I think this, and you think about podcasts, I mean, you've been doing this podcast for a long time and it's sort of, it, it's, and don't get offended. You shouldn't. It's just, you know, it is a truth. I think for people who are listening, it's like people who are starting a new podcast today, right. And are doing interview style podcasts, I think is crazy because there's been so many that have already been successful across so many niches. And so like, if you were going to start a new marketing book related podcast, the idea of creating another interview show to me is sort of crazy, right? Cause like your podcast already exists. It's already doing well. And so like you should be creating something that's a little bit different. And so I think there's, it's not just a check the box urge, but there's also a, what I like to say is that we tend to copy ideas that are popular and then, and that's a risk mitigation strategy. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that ideas that are popular, by the time you do them, they are overly familiar and your audience will be like, ah, I don't, I don't really like this. This is, I've seen this before. This is not original. This is not sort of on the zeitgeist. And so I think that's a really important thing for people, for people to think about is like, usually the ideas that are most effective are not metaphors or not sort of related to the ideas that are most popular today. And that mm. is sort of hard for people to wrap their head around because, you know, that seems like where the proof, that's where the data is telling you to go. But actually, if you think about it in a different way, the data is telling you not to go there because it's already a crowded space. So true. And that brings to mind, and I should just say, Alan, whenever I talk to anybody for extended period, as we have been doing here, and particularly over drinks, <laughs> I start talking about these other books that have been on the show. <laughs> so, um, the... The guys who wrote conversational marketing, David Cancel mm. and uh, Dave Gerhardt, a really interesting uh, book, very super, well done. And super smart guys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you know them? And yeah, I know. Dave, I know both of them. Um, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're definitely acquaintances. Yeah. So the book was 
explicitly about chatbots, using chatbots, but you don't have to use Drift, which is their company. And they snuck in a brilliant marketing book under the guise of let us tell you about chatbots. And it was very human, very interesting. And I remember in the interview with David Cancel, he said something I'd never heard before. And he said, you know, in marketing, it's very much about arbitrage, meaning mm-hmm. if you get there first, mm-hmm. you're going to do well. So maybe an example would be, you know, if you're going to do a podcast where you interview authors of marketing and sales books, okay, maybe I got there first. Another exclusively. But the problem with an approach like that is that there's no case studies. Mm-hmm. And the, the, so in other words, you think of like a Gary Vaynerchuk, who's a real pioneer at trying new things and identifying what he thinks is going to work. And he's the king of arbitrage in, in social media because he's, he, he, he sees something like he did with the wine library many years ago when he was helping with his dad's wine store. And he realized this new YouTube thing, I could be educating people about the different types of wine. Mm. And nobody thought of that. Or as I once heard him say in a uh, keynote, he was in the college dorm and somebody finally hooked up a computer that they had to the internet. It was the first time he'd, he'd seen him doing this. <laughs> and maybe it was in the 90s or something like that. And all the guys in his room or in his suite were saying, oh, man, we can use this to pick up chicks. And Gary Vaynerchuk was saying, I can sell shit on this. <laughs> so, so it's like right off the bat that these people have the ability to identify things. And I think that's a bit of what you're talking about where you see something for the first time and then to bring up the concept I've seen in content marketing where you build a moat. You got there first and you're trying to defend that. And in one of Mark Schaefer's books, I think it was Lessons or maybe The Content Code, I can't recall, but he talked about how, like in terms of content marketing, creating content, he said, you know, content doesn't always work for every company because somebody might have already gotten there first with the content you're thinking about doing. So you need to, you know, think of an alternative. So all I can say is I hope nobody else comes up with an idea for a a book, a podcast where they interview the authors of new marketing sales books. And if I could discourage anyone from doing it, I was well, into about my 10th book, my 10th episode, and only then did I realize I was going to need to read each book. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you read it. You can, you can tell when podcast hosts do and don't. Um, and I think that's a really, good, a really good way to think about it, right, is that if you think about any marketing as sort of a, you know, a market, Right, you think about advertising is the most obvious example, and this is why you see that there sort of is these phases where you know, people go really aggressive into SEM, then display, then paid social, because as it becomes more mature, these bigger brands come in who can use bigger budgets to achieve efficiencies, and they drive up prices though, and they squeeze out smaller marketers have to go on to to, to new platforms and channels. So you see this going on in marketing as. I think the chief MarTech guy talks about this. But it's oh, Scott like the, Brinker. Yeah, the waves of, of marketing, and they're getting faster and quicker, which I think is why marketing seems somewhat frenetic to a lot of people who have to execute on it. Um, but I also think since it's moving a lot quicker, there's a lot more opportunity to be successful, to be an expert, to have sort of uh, asymmetric talent because – if you learn how to learn, which I think is a very accessible thing for people, you can be a very good marketer these days because it's not about becoming you know, the deepest expert in SEM. It's about how do you keep up with the enormous rate of change. 
So true. And I mentioned this uh, on this series a couple days ago, uh, but I remember it was with Angelina Jaspers who wrote this book called Marketing Flexology. And it was one of the best books about what people need to know for a successful marketing career. It was based on her looking back over 30 years. Hmm. She started to look back and realize what all the successful marketers were doing and what the really unsuccessful ones. And she boiled it down to a few traits. And one of them was the really successful marketers she's seen in her career were the ones that were big learners. Mm. They were always they were they were driven to continually learn and self-educate some way. And she explained how this is uh, an era when companies are actually spending less on people doing that, but there's never been a better time to educate yourself. Yeah. And uh, so Brian Halligan, one of the HubSpot co-founders, he's, I remember seeing him talk once and he talked about the kinds of people they hire is the, the one trait that was most important was sort of a play on the word know-it-all. He doesn't hire know-it-alls, but he hires what he calls learn-it-alls mm. because <laughs> he has to hire people that can teach themselves things because in a year, there's quite a bit more they have to uh, identify and uh, understand and implement. And if they can't do that, they're really in trouble. So, yeah, yeah that's, 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 so, that's so true. And it's interesting to see marketers who have been, become really successful because they are good you know, surfers in a certain way. I don't mean surfing the internet, but I mean yeah. they're they're able to keep up and sort of keep their head up enough to see what's going on and, and see some of the opportunities. And I think the ones that really do that well are the ones who start to realize that it's maybe not quite as hard because everyone is so uh, fearful and yeah. they want to look for that case study. And of course, Seth Godin will say, if you're waiting for a case study in marketing, you're going to be too late. Well, I think this comes down to something I talk about in the book a lot, which is this idea of with any creative culture and creative team, I think marketing you know, in an ideal world needs to be that, right? The, the underlying thing that limits most creative organizations or aspiring creative organizations is a lack of psychological safety. Mm. And you see this a lot with what you're talking about, which is the reason why we don't go experiment is we don't, we, we don't feel safe to do that. I mean that on a very like human existential level where, and you see this now, I mean, think about the amount of stress people are feeling as they're losing their jobs or they're worried they might lose their jobs. It's like in the sort of world in which we exist, in the capitalist system that we exist, if you do a good job, you're rewarded and a bad job, um, you are punished, right? You lose your job, you're pushed out, whatever, you're not promoted. And the result of that is there's a subjective analysis and in cultures where it feels like if I fail, I, in a specific instance, I will be punished. It makes failing very scary and very costly. So what happens is people retreat and they'd rather do stuff that's sort of down the middle and from a risk-adjusted basis, not too risky. The problem being what happens is that, well, especially in marketing, you end up with a lot of really mediocre ideas because all of marketing is about that next frontier, that arbitrage, that next wave. And so I think this is where you know, as if you're a leader, if you're CMO, if you're CEO of a company, whatever it is, your job is to reframe your organization's thinking around risk into one which says that, um, and I like, I like to use this phrase, that the process is the product. And so for good companies, I talk about in the book, I talk about Ben and Jerry's, which does a really good job of this. Ben and Jerry's, you might say, okay, their product is ice cream, right? They make ice cream. It's a very obvious thing to say. And I would say you're wrong. 
what they do is their product, their proprietary products, they have this unique R&D system for how they come up with new ice cream flavors. And when ice cream succeeds, they learn from it and they tweak their process. When it fails, they learn from that, they tweak their process. And over time, they have more and more success and more and more hits because they're refining their process. And internally, there's a deep sense of psychological safety. Pixar is a very similar story. Pixar, they think of, and they actually talk about this. Ed Catmull has a great book on creativity called Creativity Inc. He talks about how their product was their process for making movies. And there was this amazing A-B test because what happened is when Disney bought Pixar at the time, Disney animation was a mess, right? It wasn't, the movies were not good. And so they took John Lasseter and Ed Catmull, who ran Pixar, and they said, you guys need to come over and fix Disney animation. They didn't merge them. They said, keep them separate, but come over and fix it. And there was my dog barking, by the way. Um, let him in. And, <laughs> and, um, and then what they, what they did is they, re, um, they rejiggered Disney animations. Hold on. Let me just give him a second. One sec. He wants to be on the show. I know. Um, he's really excited about, excited about it. Um, but they, they rejiggered Disney animations process to match the same process as Pixar. And obviously, any of us uh, who have you know nieces, nephews, kids, whatever it is, know that Disney Animation has since become wildly successful and has had all these hit movies. And so we have this amazing sort of experiment or test that showed that ultimately at Pixar, their product was their process. And so I think that's a really important way to frame this stuff um, for anyone who wants to who wants to create that sense of psychological safety. I'm fucking sorry. Uh, <laughs> do you oh, want me to go, go back? What's that? No, you, you need to go. Uh, you need to go. No, get I don't need to. I mean, I'm not worried door. about him. He's just barking at. Cause it's know, probably somebody trying to come in and kill you. Yeah. Just, he's just barking at some person who's walking. Well, I really can't hear him that well. Oh, okay. But if you would give him an extra tummy rub from me and all the listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast, we would really appreciate that. <laughs> I will. It's some lady is just walking outside my front door, and he is not having it. So, <laughs> Well, it is his street. I yeah, mean, exactly. <laughs> um, I remember reading once that dogs, one reason they get really angry at letter carriers <laughs> is that the, the nerve of the letter carrier to come back each day, even after they've tried to bark at him and warn him, like, what, why do they not keep coming back? Normally, when a dog would bark at somebody, they would avoid him. But the letter carriers <laughs> keep coming back, and it's like, what? gosh, what is the deal with these people? They just don't understand. I'm going to have to take it to the next level. Exactly. Yeah. Come on. They, you know, they should be listened to. <laughs> right. So you, uh, I, I recently uh, heard about this concept yet again in another book that was on the show by Ron Tight called uh, Think, Do, Say, and it was the whole book wasn't about that, but he was talking about this same notion of how companies will talk a big innovation game or, uh, you know, creativity or that type of thing, and th it's just not true, mm. and the employees can pick up on it really quickly, mm. because what do we want to do more than preserve our jobs and income and the safety of our, you know, families or whoever is depending on us? Uh, we're not going to take those risks. Yeah. And I think ultimately, if you think about people's priorities, you know, providing for their family is that, is that underlying one. And so 
that is going to affect how people think and their behavior and all these things. And I think, I think that's why ultimately it's up to leadership to really set the tone on that. Cause otherwise um, people, it's very hard for people to adapt and be willing to take the risk. Now, if you are an organization where creativity feels risky, the one tactic, the one thing I think does work pretty well is what I like to call the creativity snowball, which is, you know, tell your boss, let's say you're at an insurance company that's very old school. Tell your boss you want to try something very experimental, but on something very small, right? Because ultimately risk is about cost, right? And cost at a company is time or money. So if you can make that risk very small, right? Say, I'm going to do it on my own time, or it's not going to cost anything, whatever it is, and show them in that small experiment that this new way of thinking, right, about let's try more stuff, right? Let's test and measure actually drives a result, then you can do it with something a little bit bigger and start to show that, look, like this is actually something where sometimes the results outweigh the risks. And so that is one tactic that you can use as an individual contributor to try and change the culture. It's obviously just very hard. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also this idea of, you know, let's say you've got a, uh, I, I, this may, I may have stolen this from the Ron Tite book, but I, I can't, and it's all a blur. And then once I start doing these daily drinks with authors, it's even more of a blur. <laughs> but he talked about, a, I guess, an automobile manufacturer. They've got an assembly line. They've also got a separate place where they put the, you know, the big clay model of the car. You know what I'm talking about? Like where they, the design studio or something like that. No. Always, <laughs> you know, they'll make these concept cars out of clay. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I see them on TV commercials. They probably do it all with CAD cam. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it makes for a sexier TV commercial and then, as a former ad man, you know, I can't share any more by us. <laughs> but he talks about how a lot of companies don't understand that they need to keep them separate like that. In other words, don't try and innovate on the, uh, in, on the assembly line. Yeah. It's not going to work. Instead, keep it separate and try to learn something. Just like you described with Ben and Jerry's. Try to learn something, do experiments, do tests, take the, the learning forward, and keep iterating. Just, yeah. like, uh, just like that. And that... You know, the, what the problem is, somebody will say, oh, we tried to innovate something. We tried to do something different. didn't work. It's like I can remember years ago, a guy at a panel said, advertising didn't work. I ran an ad once. Nothing happened. <laughs> so that's one of, my favorite, one of my favorite stories. But you could almost insert any other thing. You know, we tried creativity once. It didn't work, you know, or innovation or remote working or summer Friday, you know, fill in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> they just I think I think what's interesting too is if you think about from a career perspective to to you know z- zoom out for a second I think where we're headed is a place where AI and machine learning is starting to automate a lot of sort of white collar traditionally high skilled jobs and I actually think what's sort of maybe scary is if you want to talk about risk I think long term there's going to be huge swaths of the white collar labor force that is automated in a way that we don't really expect or we don't really realize will happen. And I think if you're not honing your creativity, working in an organization that rewards creativity, you put yourself actually at a lot of medium-term risk as more and more of those things start to get automated away. Mm. Well, of course that's true because I don't think anyone ever sees it coming. Mm. No. Now, I can remember uh, years ago, gosh, 30 years ago, when I was working at the J. Walter Thompson ad agency in the 1980s. Not the 1880s after the Civil War, but the 1980s. And anyway, they had these two guys uh, who worked in the print production department. And that was an enormous department. And they dealt with all the typesetters around the city. And one day, they, they let him go. 
And mm. everybody, including all the art directors who hold, held enormous sway, as did the copywriters, they said, what in the world? How, right. how can you get rid of type? The, yeah. type, the, the type shops that we deal with. Yeah. And the uh, Crave director, who was a guy who later became a really famous novelist named James Patterson, <laughs> he said, <laughs> no, they, we're going to have computers do it now. And everyone just thought, no, this, this is, the, the world has turned upside down. Uh, this, this, this can't be. And they put a guy with a, one of these computers in this one particular room and he started doing all the type. And of course the art directors were outraged for a while. And then the art directors had to start doing <laughs> their own type. Well, and I mean, you saw this more recently also with just copy editors, right? A lot of these, even I think the New York times got rid of a lot of their copy editors or their copywriting desk. I forget the exact details, but that was when that happened. People were just like aghast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right. That's where the world is going. Yeah, so those kind of things uh, crop up, and I'm pretty sure at some point there will be a, a robot, and all it does is uh, consumes digitally all these marketing and sales books and then interviews uh, the robots that belong to the authors, and, <laughs> and it generates this thing. And uh, see, the problem is I have the low-cost advantage because I don't really make any money on this, but which, which wasn't my intent. I just love doing it. So I will not be undersold. I will not be outsourced. <laughs> That's my commitment I, I to like you, that. listeners. I like that. <laughs> right. Well, Alan, it's been great catching up with you. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I wish you luck in your externally imposed uh, <laughs> writing sabbatical, and I look forward to uh, continuing to follow you, and hopefully I'll get to see you uh, speak. I hope the the move to New York goes well. As I mentioned, I was a, an ad man up there for many years. So if you mention my name at any of the finer watering holes, I'm pretty sure you're going to get your drinks half price. They'll, they'll uh, remember. I yeah, appreciate well, it. Thank you. You need for- to go during happy hour, of course, but that's exactly. not important. Yeah. But um, where can folks uh, find out more about what you're up to um, in the Yeah. Universe? So Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z has links to the book, social media, newsletter, all that good stuff. So that's a great place to, st- uh, to start. Alan dot X-Y-Z. That's it. Alan dot X-Y-Z. I got to hear this right now. I remember it from when I interviewed you before. We'll make sure to include that in your episode show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? I like that. And not only that, on Twitter, you are at Alan. I am. And I recently benefit of having a very unpopular name. Well, that's my dad's name and my brother's name and my grandfather's name. Yeah, we're an Alan. That's a family. lot of Allens in your family. That's not a common name. It was Alan Burdett Sr., Alan Burdett Jr., Alan Burdett Third. Yeah. So, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the, we got that. I, I like we got their the taste. Alan game. We got the <laughs> Alan game going on. That's right. And I not too long ago I interviewed uh, Claire Diaz Ortiz. Uh, about her book on uh, social media. It's just part of the story brand franchise. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the very first employees at Twitter. So her <laughs> Twitter handle is at Claire. Just like, uh, what's the, the founder of Twitter? His is uh, Jack, at Jack. <laughs> right? So there you go. There's probably not many of you out there. So <laughs> there you take go. It. We'll, well take thanks it. again for joining us on Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Thank you. Who let the dogs out? Who-